Well, just by way of reminder, in Revelation 1.3, blessed is he who reads, that's me, and those who hear, that's you, of the words of this prophecy, and keep those things that are written in it, for the time is near. You know, it's interesting on the end times topic, because... You know, for example, in 1 Timothy 4, it says, The Spirit expressly says, In the last days there will be doctrines of demons and people will depart from the faith. But there's this emphaticness. In 2 Timothy 3, it says, Know this, that in the last days, and then he describes a very perilous society. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, For you know perfectly well, and then he describes the last days with the Antichrist and the falling away of the church and so forth. But that church there in Thessalonica, Paul was three weeks or three Sabbaths, a possible of four weeks with them. But yet in their Christian foundation class, <laughs> he says, we covered the end time stuff just so well that you guys, even though you're maybe four weeks in the Lord, you know perfectly well all the specifics uh, around the last days and the coming of Christ and the the rapture of the church and so forth. And so this is a topic that, that again, the the, the Lord makes it clear. He doesn't want us to be ignorant concerning these things. And, And so really as Christians, we are to be prepared, watchful, studious, prayerful, and, and, and really diligent in, in this topic. And last week, we looked at verse 19 of chapter 1. And there again, it says, These things which you have seen, chapter 1. The things which are, chapter 2 and 3. And the things which will take place after this, chapters 4 through 22. So there's a layout right there in verse 19 of the book of Revelation. Now, looking at the things which are, we're going to be looking at seven churches. Seven, the number of completion. Eight, the number of new beginnings. And so, uh, as we look at these seven churches, there's a few ways you can look at them. You know, one way is sort of the primary application to say they're, you know, actual churches. And if you look at them, it's the postal route. If somebody, uh, again, the postman of the day would be going, hitting these churches through Asia Minor, Turkey today, this would be the route he would take. And uh, secondly is a prophetic view. Some look at the seven churches as seven dispensation of time and, and, you know, the church of Laodicea would be our time and so forth. Another way is looking at it is saying, well, these seven churches, which one applies to us? Or maybe they all apply to us. How do they apply to us as a congregation? And then the next way, I think the way we should look at it is personally, individually. You know, as God speaks to the church of Ephesus, God, what are you saying to me tonight? And then each of these churches to say, Lord, you're you're speaking to me. You know, um, when the Lord came to Mary, the mother of Jesus, according to the flesh, he, she's like, he's like, well, you're going to have a baby. And it's like, well, how can I have a baby? The, you know, the angel tells her, how, how can I have a baby? I'm a virgin. Well, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. The power of the Most High is going to be with you. And, and I'm sure she didn't understand that. I don't even understand that to this day with all the light we have. 
But, but I love Mary's response. In Luke chapter 1, verse 38, it says this, And Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I love that. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. So I just think that we need to have that heart as we go. And tonight we look at the church of Ephesus. We just say, Lord, let it be to me according to your word. What is it that you're speaking into my life here tonight? And so we look at the church of Ephesus to the angel. Now this is the Greek word angelos. It just means messenger. And and as it's speaking to the, the messenger, I think it's referring to the pastor or the leaders uh, of the church of Ephesus who have the responsibility to take the word of the Lord and be proclaiming the word of the Lord to the people of Ephesus. And so to the messenger of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in the right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And so in each of the churches, the Lord reveals himself in, in a unique way. And here he's saying to, to the one who's in the midst of the church, the midst of, of the, the prophetic message that's going to be coming forth. Um, I, I have something to say to you, but I, I'm concerned whether or not your eyes are on the Lord and on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of, of the Father, ready to, to hear these things. Well, you know, the church of, or the, the city of Ephesus itself um, was a world-famous city. And uh, I think we have some pictures of it. Do we have pictures of Ephesus? Can't see. There we go. Well, this is a picture of all of Turkey, and the seven churches are within that, and here are the, the names of the time uh, of the Bible, and then we'll go to the next one. And here we go. Here are the seven churches and where they're located in Asia Minor. And you can see there Ephesus. At one time, it was right on the sea coast. But because of sedimentation, now today, if you were to go visit the ancient ruins of Ephesus, it's about four miles inland. But at one time, it was situated right on the Aegean Aegean Sea, uh, right on the mouth of the Caister River, one of the greatest seaport uh, of the ancient world. And uh, it was a beautiful city, one of the chief cities. Um, about 500,000 in population today at one time, estimated around 1 to 2 million people uh, in Ephesus. It was a cultural center as well, a large library. Let me keep going through the pictures there as I'm talking. And uh, we'll see here, this is, um, yep, there's the, the runs of it today. And uh, the Gate of Augustus. In the library of Celsus, and this library uh, had 12,000 scrolls. It was built in such a way with an inner and outer protectant to keep the temperature and humidity from in any way damaging these scrolls. Um, there was also, um, yeah, the temple of Adrian, 
one of the seven wonders of the world, four times larger uh, than even the one in Greece. And then there was a couple of theaters. They had one theater that seated around 20,000 people. And then they had the next one, an amphitheater that seated around 100,000 people. Um, again, when we talk about it being a religious center, it was a pagan religious center. And the Temple of Diana had 127 pillars, 60 feet tall. Uh, it was, again, four times larger than the Pantheon in Athens. It was destroyed by the Goths in 20, or 256 A.D. But remember, the gospel came. Aquila and Priscilla, who grabbed Apollos, who was a a beautiful orator, but didn't have his doctrine quite right, and they helped him out in Acts 18. And then later, Paul came, and the longest place he ever stayed was three years, and it was in Ephesus. And then he brought Timothy there, who he turned the church over to, a large church, um, and young Timothy was the pastor while Paul was in prison. And ultimately, the apostle John became the pastor in Ephesus, and he died there. And uh, his burial place is there to this day. You can keep going there with the pictures. Bathhouse was a very immoral place. um, And the worship of Diana, she had multiple breasts, uh, upon her, starting at her neck all the way down. Um, and, and the worship of Diana was one of the most um, disgusting of all the, the pagan gods. Uh, just giant group orgies, uh, the bathhouses as we saw there. And, uh, and it was something that sort of just imploded upon itself because um, the sexuality was so great that it couldn't be fulfilled. And, uh, but again, the prostitutes that would prostitute themselves and give the money uh, to Diana. And of course, Paul uh, had a great impact. And remember Alexander, who would make these, these statues of Diana, was put out of business. And he, said, he spent the rest of his life uh, persecuting Paul. And he said, here are these guys who turned the world upside down. Really, as one commentator said, no, they actually turned the world right side up, especially in the places where they were worshiping Diana. And in the ancient world, they said that of all the gods and goddesses, Diana was probably the most prolific, uh, the most worshipped of all the goddesses. Well, in verse 2 here, he says, I know your works your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. As we look at each of the churches, there's sort of a pattern. First of all, there's a revealing of the nature of Jesus. Secondly, There's a positive affirmation, except to one of the churches. And then after the positive affirmation, thirdly, there's a correction. And then fourthly, there's a reward promise, an eternal reward. So the revealing, number one, of the nature of Jesus. Number two, a positive affirmation. 
Number three, a correction. And number four, the eternal reward, the reward promise. And so we see here the positive affirmations of Ephesus, the things they were doing right were many. So look at your works. You guys are just have so many good works going on in the church and towards one another and unto the Lord. And your labor is great. You guys are just striving and sacrificing yourself, uh, your time and your finances, your family to serve the Lord. In 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, it says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Boy, that should be said of all of us. We are steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, and remembering that all our work is not in vain, that we're going to have great reward in heaven for all that we've done unto the Lord. Another great passage on this is in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 through 12. It says this, For God is not unjust to forget your work, your labor of love, which you have sown, shown towards my, his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to, to full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those through faith and patience, inherit the promise. So I desire that all of you continue this life of sacrificing, of this labor of love, ministering to the saints. Don't get sluggish. Don't slow down. Don't say, I already put my decade in. I'm going to quit now. No, keep it going right until the end. And again, he also says, your patience. This is a steadfast endurance. So your work your labor, your steadfast endurance. And then you cannot bear with those who are evil. You hate what God hates to the degree he hates it. And then also, you've tested those who say they're apostles and are not, you've found them liars. And you say, hold it, aren't we supposed to be loving and kind and, and not to be calling people liars? Well, in Matthew 7, 1, Jesus says, Judge not that you not be not judged. And you're going, there it is. We're not supposed to judge. This word is to judge unto condemnation. We're not to say, this guy's going to hell. This guy's going to heaven. And I'm going to be the judge. Who's right with God and who's not. We can't look upon a, uh, the heart of a man. But if you look at Matthew chapter 7, that's verse 1. You skip down to verse 15. After the Lord told us not to judge... And then notice what he tells us to do. Beware of false prophets who come in in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree bears get bad fruit. Every good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So right after the Lord says, don't judge, then he says, hey, judge. (laughs) But what is he talking about here? He's talking about discernment. And we as believers need to discern. Is this guy somebody who just seems a little off? And maybe after he hears the word, he's going to grow and change and, and be of the right heart and the right mind. That's what we hope. 
But there's guys that come in and they're a little off because they're not a wounded or a sick sheep. It's because they're wolves. And eventually, their lack of submission, their lack of teachableness, their, their heart, it, it's revealed that they are wolves. And so again, <clears throat> we need to be ready for such things. In Acts 20, listen to Paul warning the church in Ephesus. He says in Acts 20, verse 29, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourself, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. One of the things that Paul warned night and day with tears repeatedly for three years is there's going to be people from outside but also from within that are going to raise up and it's always shocking and always surprising but they're wolves and they're trying to drag people away uh, after themselves, not unto Jesus In 2 Corinthians 11, listen to what Paul tells the Corinthian church in verse 13 through 15. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves. It's the word metamorphosize, like a butterfly. They metamorphosize themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. And so you have these people and you say, but they look so good. (laughs) They look like they're angels of light. Well, that's what Satan appears as. If Satan were to appear here right now, he wouldn't scare you with his pointed tail and his his horns and his pitchfork. He would amaze you with his beauty. We would be in awe. When God described him in in Isaiah and Ezekiel, it says he was the perfection of beauty. He was this thing that was the chief of all of God's creation. And that's what we would see, this most marvelous of all creation. We'd be dazzled by his beauty. We'd be overcome Uh, by his looks and by his stature. Well, again, in Revelation 2, 3, he goes on to say, and you have persevered, have patience, have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. And again, you've persevered. You've been patient. He says it for the second time now. You've had this radical endurance. The church in Ephesus just fighting against the incredible immorality the incredible passion for Diana, the incredible buildings that were built, the seven wonders of the world was Ephesus and, and the great uh, temple to Diana. And here they were, this little church meeting in houses and meeting in you know other little places and colleges and so forth. And, and here was a goddess of Diana with hundreds of thousands of people showing up and you know theaters of 100,000 people packed out to the worship of her. And here's the church, you know, pelling in comparison. But these believers have just pressed on against the the power of the the worship of of Diana and so forth. And they haven't backed off. In Hebrews chapter 10, 
Verse 32 to 39, it says this. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with suffering. Verse 33 of Hebrews 10. Partly while you were made a spectacle, both the, and by reproaches and tribulations, partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourself in heaven therefore do not cast away your confidence which has great reward for you have need of endurance maybe that's some of you here tonight as the Lord speaking it's you just have that need of endurance to finish till the end so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, which is a description of Judas, but of those who believe to the saving of the souls. Heavy. But Paul here is saying that we have to make it to the end. We just had our men's retreat and, and Rob Salvato spoke and, and, and the point there that was being made was that you've got to have a, a, a good second half. It doesn't matter how great your first half was. You have to have a great second half to win the game. And, and maybe you're a Christian who had a great first half and you sort of said, well, the game's won. No, the game's not won until you finish the game. And in the same way in Christianity, don't draw back. You've got to finish the second half to win. In James chapter 5, listen to this. In verse 7 through 11, he says, Therefore be patient, that endurance to the end, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord has very compassionate and merciful And so again, we just need to establish ourselves until the coming of the Lord or until we go to see him. And he also says there in verse two, having labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Or I might say, not let yourself grow weary. When we start to grow weary, we catch ourselves saying, no, we're not gonna let ourselves grow weary. In Galatians 6, 9, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Do you hear that? You say, well, I can't help it if I grow weary. If I grow weary, I grow weary. What can I do about it? And he's saying here, yes, you can stop the weariness. You know, if you're again running the marathon and you're 15 miles into it and you're just saying, I'm done. Oh, my feet hurt. They're hot. You know, my back hurts. My arms hurt. You know, I just need to, I just need to stop right up here. Here's a stopping place and that's the place I need to stop and I just need to stop right now. I'm done. You know, I can't make it to the end. I mean, you, you can have that conversation with yourself, right? 
Or you can have the other conversation. I've done this many times before. I've ran the whole marathon before. I've done it. I can do it again today. You know, it doesn't matter that it's hot. It doesn't matter that my feet are hurt. I can do it. You know, you, you can have either conversation with yourself. And in essence, he's saying, don't let yourself grow weary. In 2 Thessalonians 3.13, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And so here, as he writes, he has seven positive things to say about the church in Ephesus. But now, he's going to correct them. You know, I just might stop here a moment and say, that that is our job. It's not just to tell people the truth about God, but to speak into people's lives. Rebuke. And, and some of you might going, ah, you know, I just don't have the personality for that. I understand it needs to be done. That's why I come to church because there's other people that can do that. No, it, it's for all of us. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 to 26. And a servant of the Lord, that's all of us here tonight, isn't it? Must, here it says, must not quarrel, or the old King James says strive. We don't want to have this spirit of argumentative, you know, you know getting in. You know, the thing is when you're, when you're having to correct people, you got to get in the mud. This is why the proverb says, don't, don't speak to a fool in his folly. And the very next verse says, but speak to the fool in his folly. <laughs> well, which is it? You, you, you don't, you, you don't want to get in over your head in the mud, but you still got to get in the mud. You know, you're going to walk away not feeling good about it. You're going to walk away not, not you know, you're going to s- smell like everybody else. But at the same time, you can't just let him think that he's right in his own eyes. And so you, you, you don't want to get in there and, and be foolish like him, but at the same time, you've got you to deal with the fool and you look somewhat like a fool too. There's no way around it. But what, what is a servant of the Lord to be here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24? But be, number one, notice, gentle to all, able to teach, We need to know the Bible. We need to say here in the Bible it says this. You're saying this, but the Bible is disagreeing with you. And then what? Be patient. What's the next thing? In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. So notice, we want to be like Jesus. We've got to get in the mix, and it's it's not a fun place to be. It's not a prosperous place to be. It's not a successful place to be. It's not an enjoyable place to be, but we need to be there. And as we're going to see, it's a pretty regular business. But we want to be like Jesus. We want to be gentle. We want to be humble. You know, we don't, we don't want to have some arrogant spirit. Listen, I've been a Christian 20 years. You've been a Christian two years. Just listen to me. Well, what about the heretic that's been a heretic 20 years? And you've been a Christian for two years. I've been a heretic 20 years. You've been a Christian for two years. So listen to my heresy. Hey, you know, time doesn't necessarily mean you're right, does it? The Bible says, out of the, the mouth of babes, the Lord has, 
has ordained to speak. So we, we don't want to have an arrogant spirit. We, we want to we be humble. We want to be gentle. We want to be patient. You know, we, we may not win the argument today, but that's okay. We're going to keep on speaking into this person's life. But then notice as it goes on there, it says, but as we're humble, correcting those who are in opposition, and then listen to this, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so they may know the truth, they may come to their senses, and notice, escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive, unaware of it, I think, but they've been taken captive by him to do his will. People, I don't think, understand sometimes when they, they, they got into this pride or get into this false doctrine and Satan has taken an advantage of them and they're indirectly being used of the devil. And what does it say? If perhaps God will grant them. You know, the fact is, guys, when people have chosen to go the way of pride and heresy and, and you know, they're, they're self-promoting they're self-seeking. They're trying to, you know, say, I've, I'm superior and I know the way and listen to me. And they're trying to proselyte a little group of people after themselves. You know what? The odds of them repenting are not in your favor. So it's one of those tasks that we have as believers that we're not going to be successful that often. And so that makes it even harder to do it. But as God brings it to light, we need to deal with it. And we need to realize that's a part of being a Christian. It's not just telling them the happy stuff. If you go through the scripture, most of the Bible is negative truth. Just like as a parent, you listen to parents parenting their kids. Most of the time it's negative information. Don't step there. Watch out there. Be careful with that. Don't touch that. You know, it's, it's most of the time we're warning because we're in a world full of hurt and pain and suffering and difficulty. And the proverb says the, the heart of a child's full of foolishness. And so because of that foolishness, you're, you're constantly telling them sort of on the negative side of things. And, you know, I wish it wasn't that way. It's just the way it is in this sin-fallen world. In Second Timothy 3.16, or 3.16, it says this, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, so all the Bible is breathed by God, given to us, and is profitable for, number one, doctrine, teaching. But then look at the next three things, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. <laughs> So, yeah, the word of God's for teaching, and then the next three things are about rebuking people. The next three things are, are telling people they're wrong and, and how they need to get right. This is God's word. It's for teaching, but then the next three things are reproof, correction, and instruction of righteousness. And notice that the man of God may be what? Complete. That word in the Greek is also translated mature and perfect. And I think often you have to use all three of those words to really get the sense of this Greek word. That the man of God may be complete. That the man of God may be mature. That the man of God may be perfect. And then notice, thoroughly equipped for what? Every good work. Every good work. 
That's being a spouse. That's being a parent. That's being a friend. That's being a child. That's being at work. You know, you know what? We, we, we have out of consolation all these marriage classes and parenting classes and all of these things. And you know what? It's just basically trying to help you put out the fire that's in front of you right now. But there is not a big enough book that can exist to tell you how to be a spouse. There is not enough, you know, it would take you 10 million years to get all the information you need to know to be a parent. We, it's, it's not possible. How is it that you're going to be ready and fruitful and your kids are going to grow up and have the knowledge of God and walk in obedience and, 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 and make it through all the stumbling blocks and giant holes they can fall into and all the things that could kill them and destroy them on the way. It's just like this, guys. I don't know how it works. But as we get our eyes on Jesus and just fully, fully love him and serve him and quit making excuses and making ourselves an exception, you know, everybody else needs to go to church like this, but me, I do it like this. Everybody else needs to read the Bible and pray, and, but, you know, I'm an exception. And, and, and we're just spending our lives making ourselves an exception to the rule and giving excuses why I don't need to be a simple Christian loving Jesus and following Jesus every day. And you know what? We're, we're going to pay the consequences of that in our marriage. Yeah, it may take 10, may take 20 years before that little tiny seed grows up into a giant cactus, you know, that you're running into every time you try to go to the bathroom and ripping your arm off. It may take 10 years before you see the, the manifestation in your kids in a rebellious heart or a, a, a desire for drugs or a desire to hurt themselves or a desire to go off in some rebellious tangent with some girl or some guy or whatever. And you're just like, man, what's going on with this kid? What's happening? It, well, it goes back to you. All those years you were making yourself an exception, all those years you were making excuses why I don't need to be just a simple Christian, you know, taking all of God's word in. It's just that simple, guys. You meditate in God's word day and night, you're strong, your leaf doesn't wither, you bear fruit in your season, and whatever you do prospers. You just hide God's word in your heart and don't, you won't sin against him. You know, Joshua 1, you let God's word in your mouth. You don't let it depart from you. Keep it in your mouth. You'll have sure success in all that you do. Praying without ceasing. Don't forsake the gathering together to the brethren. It, it, you know what? It, it's just, you know, it, it's like this. You, you've been married 20 years and you're, you're going to spend X amount of time in your marriage. <laughs> you're going to spend that time going out on dates and reading the Bible together and praying together and going to church together and, and talking about the things of God together and, and enjoying that time. Or you're, you're going to make yourself an exception, an excuse, and you're not going to be doing all those things. And then you're just going to spend X amount of time in marriage counseling and, and law offices and, you know, separations and, you know, separate rooms and, you know, you're, you go live in an apartment for a while while I live here is I don't want to live with you anymore. You know, you're going to spend the same amount of time working on your marriage. Just one's going to be going out on a date and the other's going to be in a law office. Same with your kids. 
You know, you're, you're going to spend time reading the Bible to your kids and taking them to church and, and praying with them and helping them read the Bible and pray. And see, you know, you're going to spend, are you going to spend that time in a counseling office or the juvenile hall or the law office? You're going to spend the same amount of time. It's just where are you going to spend that time? And I'm just telling you, it's, it's just a lot more enjoyable to do it day by day, week by week, just getting God's word hid in your heart and you and your kids and your family rather than in juvenile hall, you know, down at the police station, at the law office, in the counseling office. It's, it's that simple. And so here we come again and just to realize that big part of our job is rebuking. How? Through the word of God. You've got to have the word of God rich in your heart because we saw in 2 Timothy 2 and now in 2 Timothy 3, it's with the word of God we're, we're rebuking and correcting and, and, and giving instruction in righteousness. Here's a, a sort of a, well, you take it for what it's worth. In Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7 through 9, it says this. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. The, the, the New American Standard says you get a scar for yourself. You know, you don't really know. You don't know if you're dealing with a fool or not. And you assume the person's not a fool. But the fact is, is you go to correct somebody and you get this giant scar for yourself and, wow, I wish I hadn't corrected that guy. Well, you didn't know he was a fool until you tried to correct him. Right? I mean, you just assume the guy's going to submit. Then he doesn't submit and you realize... Yeah, that's the devil. The devil's the guy who doesn't submit. That's a, a demonic heart. What did he say in 1 Samuel 15? The rebellion is the same as witchcraft. Idolatry is, or excuse me, stubbornness is the same as idolatry. But you don't know that you're dealing with a temple worshiper. You don't know you're dealing with a demonic guy until you try to test to see if there is submission. But here the same way, you, you, you correct somebody and then you realize they're a fool. That's scoffer. It's another word for fool. And in verse 7, he continues the second part of Proverbs 9, 7. And he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. So you correct a fool, you get a scar. You correct a wicked man, you get harm. And in verse 8, do not correct a scoffer. <laughs> well, you don't know until you start to correct him, do you? Lest he hates you. So you get a scar and then he hates you. Rebuke a wise man, and what? He will love you. And this is the thing you've got to understand, guys. I've had people come up and rebuke me, and my heart just rejoices. Because I realized that was so hard for you to say. And I never would have saw it had you not told me. And just don't talk to me anymore for a long time. No, it's a... And so again, it's, it's a hard thing. And again, not even the wise man doesn't jump up and down and go, ooh, you know, thank you. You know, it's, it's not always that way. It's sort of like, uh, I got to think about this. Leave me alone, you know. And then you come back later going, wow, that was really good. Thanks, you know. So it's, 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 a, hard, it's a hard business. But we're all to be in that business, right? We are to follow who? Jesus. And Jesus is the one getting ready to break the churches. Well, give instruction. He goes on in, in, in Proverbs 9, verse 9. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be wiser, still wiser. 
Teach a just man, a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. And the bottom line is this, guys. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a what? A friend. You know, the bottom line, guys, if somebody sees something in your life and is unwilling to have their stomach and curls and the the headache for a couple of days and they're dying a thousand deaths and they finally say, "Ah, God showed me in the word and I gotta share this with you. You know, that should be the way it is when you share somebody like that to correct them, isn't it? You know, I, I've been a pastor, any pastor, 27 years, and before that, assistant pastors, and it's still that way with me. <laughs> I die a thousand days. It's, it's still a horrible, hard thing. But love causes you to get past that, right? And, and it's, a part of the, it's a part of being a Christian. Here's another great verse, Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron... <laughs> So a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. You ever seen iron sharpening? Pressure, sparks, heat. And that's the way it is. You know, hey, I've got something to share out of the word. Ah, that's not right. That's not me. You're wrong. Yes, you. That's your wife. That's those doggone kids of yours. That's who that is. Ah, you know, ah, you know, and you sharpen each other and it's, it's just the way it is. Heat, sparks, pressure. And, and again, that's the way it is. Love wins out. But love sometimes is not the big hug and the big kiss and I'm okay, you're okay. Love often looks like, brother, I, I, I love you, but the way you treated your wife last Friday night, that was sin. Let me show you Ephesians 5 here. You're to love your wife as Christ loves the church. And that was wrong. Uh, you know, the arrows of the heart, sweating, you know, all, you know, all those things. And so again, as we go into now the Lord speaking to the church, it's really something all of us need to do in the church. <laughs> again, all scripture is God-breathed and it's good for teaching. And then three things of rebuking people that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, prepared for every good work. How do we get there? Fully equipped. A lot of the word is negative. A lot of the word is to rebuke us along the way. It's a heavy thing, isn't it? But again, it's life. We're in a sinful world. We're in a sinful body. We're just, that's just the way it is. And for us to be cleansed from the filth of this world, for us to grow in Christ the way we need to grow, it's faithful are the wounds of a what? Of a friend. Iron sharpening iron. So the friends, those who love each other, are going to be helping each other grow. I mean, have you ever been like that? You, you've been in a restaurant and, and you got this big chunk of mayonnaise stuck in your beard. You ladies know what I'm talking about. And, uh, and you're there like 20 minutes talking to this guy. And then you get up to go to the bathroom and you're like, I've been there 20 minutes. I said hi to 10 different people. And this guy didn't care enough to me to tell me, by the way, you might want to take that chunk of mayonnaise out of your beard. It's like, what's up with that? 
You know, you go back and say, don't you care enough? I just didn't want to tell you. It's so embarrassing. And I'll tell you what's more embarrassing. Having this in your beard for 20 minutes and you're not telling you. You know, again, it's, it's a hard thing. I understand it. It is a hard thing. And it never gets easier. But it's the, what love does, right? If you don't discipline your kids, you know, they end up being horrible. But love causes you to discipline them. And so here tonight, verse 4. We're tearing this up now. Revelation 2, 4. The Lord Jesus speaking to the church of Ephesus. And I just like to say, just for all of us, just speaking to me right now. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So first of all, nevertheless, it's a strong word. So even although all this is going on and it's wonderful, it can't replace this. Right? I mean, if a guy is, you know, a community worker and raised $10 million for the March of Dimes and, and, you know, he helps his neighbor take out the trash every week and, you know, the only thing I have against you is you rob banks on the weekend. But it's no big deal because you're such a wonderful community person we're just going to ignore this. It doesn't happen, right? And, and so the, the, the things that aren't right have to be taken care of. It's not one or the other. It always has to be both. But notice Jesus here saying, I have this against you. And this is a very strong word in the Greek again. This, this is not some, well, you know, there's this little thing. I don't really, it's, it's so small. I, 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 I hate to even bring it up. Matter of fact, I don't even know if I should bring it up. I'll bring it up. But, you know, don't worry about it if it offends you. That's not what's happening here, is it? He's saying, even though all of these wonderful works are going on, I hope they continue to go on. Nevertheless, I'm bringing up something that has to be different. And at this moment, it is so bad. I'm your enemy. I'm against you. I mean, this is just hard to imagine. If Jesus appeared right now and looked at you, singled you out of the crowd, said, come up here, I'm against you. I mean, what would happen to you? <laughs> Wouldn't you just fall on your knees going, what do I need to do to not make you against me? I love you. I don't, you know, I, I mean, the, the last thing I ever thought I would hear is that Jesus, my Lord, my Savior, is against me. That's a heavy word. And so, you know, you think Jesus is against me. What is it? Murder, (laughs) adultery, idolatry. (laughs) It's got to be something huge. Well, here it is. You left your first love. Uh, (sighs) I thought, oh man, am I ever relieved? I thought it was something important. Well, this is important. This is so important, he says, if it doesn't get into the church, he's ending the church. Even though this church has tons of good works, even though these guys are standing against evil, even though they're just laboring and love and enduring and, and serving the saints, he's saying the church needs to cease existing if they don't have love. A church with a lot of motion 
without emotion. R.A. Torrey, talking about prayer, says it this way. A church that does a lot of traveling, but not traveling. Organizing, but not agonizing. A lot of singing, but no clinging. A lot of fears, but few tears. Much fashion, but little passion. We'll trade in commotion for true creation. We'll trade in action for unction. Failing here in prayer, we fail everywhere. In the same way, the Lord is saying, I have to have a church that just has a passionate love for me. Not just a doctrinal correctness. Not just being able to point out the heretics and stand against them. But when it's you and Jesus, there's this deep passion. You ever see it in marriages where they start out loving each other and being together and then the children come. And then all of a sudden they start worshiping their kids and they're, they're so focused on their kids and, and everything's about the kids and, and you know, they, they, they just wear themselves, you know, just to exhaustion to make sure the kids are here and there and, you know, get to this game and that, that thing and that thing and they're, you know, all's done and then they have another kid and, and then they, you know, they got their third kid or fourth kid and, and they're, you know, they're going here and there and they're tagging up a little bit here and, and then they realize, in the midst of this, we don't really know each other anymore. And, you know, I'm sort of like this, and you're like that, and, you know, we don't really have the same desires in life, the same goals in life, the same direction in life. And then the last kid begins to head out the door. (laughs) He's got his driver's license. He's gone more than he's around. And there, these two strangers are in the same house, and they begin to realize, I, I don't even think I can tolerate you as a roommate. And then the marriage is over. After 30 years. It's a very common thing. And in essence, Jesus is coming in the midst of the three kids being raised, you know, one twelve and one eight and one three, and, and, and he is saying, I'm not going to wait until the 30-year mark, until you look at each other saying, I don't know you anymore, and let's divorce. I'm saying right now, I'm not playing the game anymore. I'm not going to keep running around here and there and tagging up and paying the bills and, you know, going on a double date with this couple and, you know, going here and going there and, and not having this passionate marriage, this passionate relationship. Well, how do you fix this? He says in verse 5, this way, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly, remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. He gives three things. In the English, it works out well. Number one, remember. Number two, repent. And number three, repeat. Number one, remember from when you've fallen. Here's a question. Can you remember a time when you were more on fire for the Lord than you are right now? 
Oh, man, I remember 10 years ago, I used to go out and witness. And, man, I used to just read the Bible. I'd wake up in the morning, and every day was like Christmas morning. I couldn't wait to read the Bible with God speaking to me next. And I just remember I'd get to church an hour early, and I'd just be there. And, man, we start singing, and i just lift my hands the whole time. And, and afterwards, I just couldn't give enough hugs to everybody and wanted to hear what God was saying to them. And, you know, I was there, the la- first one to there and the last one to leave. And, you know, I just, man, I was just... I wish I could get back to that place. That was the sweetest time in my life. Well, if that's true, if you can remember a time, then you are backslidden from where you're at now. You, you are this. You can remember a time when you were more on fire than you have fallen backwards. You are in this place of having lo- lost that first love. And again, it wasn't that you lost it, excuse me, you left your first love. There was a point. You know, it says that God gives us a way of escape. That there's no temptation that's too great for us. That God gives us a way of escape. Or in many translations it says a window of escape. And that window, like the setting of an elevator door, it may be seconds. It may be like Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife, you know, as she starts taking his jacket off, and he's like, oh, she's good looking, and Potiphar's gone, and nobody would know, and and there's that moment where his jacket came off, and there was just a split second from him letting her grab his arm or dart towards the door. And he realized, there's my way of escape. It's a fraction of a second. It's 1.2 seconds. But this is it. And boom, he took off running. Left his jacket behind. There is a point in time where you realize, I'm, I'm starting to allow these other things to be my master passion. I'm allowing these other things to be my God. I'm allowing these other things to dictate what I do in the morning and how I go to bed at night and how I spend my time and how I spend my money and what I put my energies towards. And, and, I, and I know that I'm not going to be passionately serving the Lord as I am right now when I take this turn. And in that moment, you left your first love. I know in my own life, I remember a time when, again, for me, it was allowing compromise and sin to come into my life. And I remember weeks going by, months going by, and I'm just dying inside. Until I got to that place where I just, I had no desire to go to church. I just had no hunger for the word. I just didn't have any toleration for prayer. And I just remember in my mind just calculating it out going, in a few months, I'm going to be going to church once every quarter instead of once every week. I'm going to put my Bible somewhere and not even know where it's at. I'm not going to no longer not be just not where I need to be with the Lord. I'm going to be compromising in some deep sin. And I don't know, I've not been in addiction to anything, but I am confident that 
one of those things that I keep looking at. One of them is going to addict me. Whatever it is, I'm going to get addicted and it's going to be in control of my life and I'm not going to have control. And I just remember just going, I've got to get back where I once was with the Lord. And man, I just started beating myself and prodding myself and reading the Bible and I it just got nothing out of it. I prayed and they, my prayers just bounced off the ceiling. I went to church and I set up close like I did when I was on fire and I got nothing out of the sermon. And I just remember just doing everything that I did, just repeating those works. And it took not weeks, it took months. It was just like trying to dig out of a pit. You know how you do that, it's all full of dirt, and you're digging, 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 and you slide. You ever been that way, trying to climb up a hill? And you're just going, ah, I'm going to get to that rock, and ah, you know. And I just remember just thinking, man, is it over with me? And I remember after months of just repeating, repeating, repeating those words that finally the day came and my heart changed. And it's, ah, I can worship again. Oh, I can hear God's voice again. Oh, I have a hunger to just spend time in prayer and worship again. And I remember when I was there, I said to myself, remember this, Brian. It is a long, hard, painful road to get back to the place of your first love. And for a lot of you tonight, God is speaking. You are in a dangerous place. And the Lord is saying to you clearly, you need to remember that place when you were in your first love. And just out of sheer knowledge, you're not going to feel it you're not going to feel this. I, I remember at that time just going, I need to repent. I need to repent. Like, Lord, you know, just let some car run into my car and rip my arm off. And there I'm in the hospital going, ah, with one arm going, yes, I repent. You know, I mean, I didn't know what it was going to take for my heart to fill again. But I just remembered I was so numb and I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't feel bad and I couldn't feel happy about anything spiritual. But I do remember that day when things just clicked and that passion returned. And I just remembered I never wanted to have to spend those months again trying to get back to that first love. Remember, repent, and repeat. Right? Let's say it together. Remember, repent, and repeat. I had a good friend of mine and he's sort of a counselor of of a lot of people and he ended up being a counselor of some pretty powerful people and if I were to mention their names you would know who I'm mentioning and talking about but these pastors and these spiritual leaders had fallen and actually uh, for some of them had ended their ministries and I asked him one day I'm like well what was it that caused them to be so strong and so powerful and, you know, writers and public speakers and and then the next thing they're, you know, over at Target, you know, working in the whatever section, not fulfilling their ministry. And I'm waiting for some profound answer and he simply said this, they stop having their devotions. 
There was a point where they just stopped spending time with Jesus. And from there, in a weakened state, Satan was able to completely do whatever he wanted to do. It's, it's a radical thing. Remember that story in Luke 10 where Martha is trying to get all the food ready and, and there's Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. And he comes in and says, Lord, don't you care? Tell Mary to get up and start helping me and get things ready because I've got a house full of people and we need to feed them. And he said, Martha, Martha. This is what he said. There is one thing needful. Radical, guys, isn't it? One thing needful. And Mary has chosen that good part and it shall not be taken away from her. And again, all the things that the church of Ephesus were doing and all their labors and all their works and, you know, this is good and I'm fighting against this heresy and I'm spending time on this ministry and you know what? Those things are great from the outflow of spending time at the feet of Jesus. But it can't replace spending time at the feet of Jesus, right? Martha, Martha. And maybe that's the word. These things are good. But yet, it's keeping you from where you need to be, that one thing of being at the feet of Jesus. And then what does he say? You must do it quickly. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, he says this, Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily, why it's called what? Today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitful of sin, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. It's today. It's amazing that our hearts becoming cold. It's like seconds are like hundred years. It's not like, ah, next week. No, it's now. And this message tonight is not like, oh, I'll think about it tomorrow and maybe next week when Brian's preaching, I'll think about it some more. No, it's now. In verse 6, he, he comes back to a good deed they have, another off affirmation. The issue have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Nicolaitan is, is Nico, a, a hierarchy over the laity. And this is again where groups have come and said, you need me as a leader to reach God for you. I, I think of a perfect example as a Catholic church. You come to me and confess your sins, and I'll tell you what to do to, to, to show repentance towards God. I need to give you the last rites so you can make it to heaven. You need me as a leader to be right with God. Guys, that's one of the things that grieves and angers the heart of God more than anything. In 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and what? One mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.24. Not that we are in dominion over your faith, but we are fellow workers of your joy. By faith you stand. It's not somebody over you. It's somebody next to you. And so here tonight, we come to a place where we need to make a decision in our hearts. Uh, this again says... In verse 7, 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Do you have an ear to hear? You know, I think if you've lost your first love, I think your ear is probably calloused. Your heart is sort of hard. I don't necessarily think it's going to be, oh man, I just, oh, I'm feeling it. It's so warm and it's so tingly and I'm so convicted. I think that if some of you have lost your first love, that's the last thing you're going to fear. But nevertheless, God's spirit is breaking through that crust. God's spirit's breaking through that hardness right now. And right now, God's giving you an ear to hear for tonight. And what does he say? In the paradise of God, you're going to be eating of this tree of life. I I want to end tonight with a letter I got from a pastor, a good friend of mine. And he writes this. Hey, bro. I feel myself far from God. I feel far from my wife. I've left my first love with both, and it has been a long time coming. So it feels like it may take more than a moment to get back. I need his grace, his enabling grace. I need wisdom, the kind James describes from above. The cares of this life are choking me. I have no desire to worship, a great desire for comfort and ease and sin. I'm distracted. I am mostly copying other men's sermons, not hearing much from the Lord myself. All the above troubles me. I don't expect you to fix it, but hope you will pray. There is a demonic outpouring in the city here, a demonic spirit of lesbianism. They are all over the place. Beautiful girls dressing sexy, holding hands openly with total confidence as if all is so natural. I have never seen anything like it before. Hell is pulling me out. All, hell is pulling out all the stops. P.S. The church here is packed, overflowing, and worshiping, and flourishing. By the way, how are you doing? You know, there's just that point, that moment in time where God's spirit breaks through. And in that time, we need to respond. And let's respond right now. Lord, we do thank you for your word. And just like this letter talks about tonight, where your spirit is breaking through and speaking, giving ears to hear to those who need to hear. And we ask in Jesus' name right now that you would work. We know that it's a long time coming. We know that nobody can just reach out and fix it. We know it's not a simple prayer. We know it's not raising our hands or coming forward this evening. But the answer tonight is beginning a path of remembering, repenting, and repeating. As all heads are bowed tonight and nice closed, if that's you here tonight saying, I need to begin this long, hard trek. I need to get back to that place where the Lord once again can be full of joy at the labor of love, 
the steadfastness, the immovable, enduring patience, but also a passionate heart of love for my husband, Jesus. Pray for me. If that's you tonight, don't care what anybody else thinks. It's now. It's quickly, he says. Repent. Just lift your hand, saying, it's me. I am the one who needs prayer tonight. Just lift it up. Yes, Lord, you see these tonight, Lord. And we ask in Jesus' name, Lord, just as they are humbling themselves and and saying it's them in need for prayer, just we ask in Jesus' name right now that you just pour your spirit upon them. Give them a great grace, Lord, that they've never known. And Lord, give them that patient endurance as they spend the days, weeks, months, years, whatever it takes to get back to that first love that you don't need to pull the candlestick away and end this thing with them. But they would come back to that place where they have your heart and your love and your desire in Jesus' name. And everybody said...